Good morning. I'm Duarte Geraldino. And I'm Shamita Basu. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. But first, let's catch up with some of the day's top headlines. President Trump is accusing leadership at the Defense Department of sharing a pro-war agenda with military contractors. His remarks came as he continued to push back against reporting from The Atlantic, which said the commander-in-chief called fallen World War I veterans, quote, losers and suckers in 2018. After a weekend of extreme heat, California's electrical authority, PG&E, says it's going to be shutting off the power to about 172,000 households in Northern California And House Democrats will investigate Postmaster General Louis DeJoy's history of fundraising for the Republican Party. This comes after The Washington Post reported possible instances of election law violation and lying to Congress. During the pandemic's first months in the U.S., prominent figures like New York Governor Andrew Cuomo called it the Great Equalizer. The logic went that, whether you're Tom Hanks or the local deli worker, the virus was supposed to be a threat to everyone, regardless of race or class. Well, we know now it's just not true. People with less money and fewer resources are getting hit a lot harder. And even if you were never infected, the virus is devastating the economy and affecting your wallet, further dividing the rich from the poor. Yeah, labor economist Beth Akers told Politico that this is a tale of two recessions. And she says, just take a look at people's savings and debt. The Atlantic profiles a new class of quote-unquote super savers. These are people who kept their well-paying jobs during the pandemic and have fewer expenses. They're not going out as much, buying new clothes, or putting their kids in soccer camps. Mm -hmm. Some of these people interviewed for this article say they have more money than they know what to do with. Meanwhile, on the other end of the spectrum, the Wall Street Journal looks at those who are really struggling right now and having a hard time figuring out how to get help from the government. A single mother who was part of a Harvard survey had recently finished community college, and she was told that she didn't qualify for any benefits because she wasn't employed during the pandemic. Another woman was getting free meals at a child care center where she volunteered. But when the pandemic hit, that center closed. Our unemployment system doesn't account for people like them. And same for anyone who's living here without permanent legal status. Now, the Senate returns to Washington today after a summer recess. But with the two parties further apart than they've been in months, there's not a clear path forward for another much-needed coronavirus relief package. In less than two months, voters will decide who they think should be U.S. president. And as that magic day approaches, there are rumblings Russia is at it again, meddling in U.S. elections by pushing disinformation campaigns. Now, Russia has a documented history here. According to the Mueller report, organizations and accounts linked to the Internet Research Agency, which is a group backed by the Kremlin, reached tens of millions of people in the United States in 2016. And yet Moscow correspondent Joshua Yaffa writes in The New Yorker, we're obsessing over the wrong thing. Yaffa talks with Nina Jankowicz. She studies democracy and technology in Central and Eastern Europe. And she recently came out with a book called How to Lose the Information War. She told The New Yorker when the media and foreign policy experts focus too much attention on threats coming from outside the U.S., 
this narrative becomes a convenient way of deflecting attention away from what's not working in our own country's politics. It's much easier to accept that the bad guy is out there somewhere rather than right here in our own home. Shamita, it might be useful here to highlight the reach of these false information campaigns. A researcher at Bellingcat, which is an investigative journalism website, tells The New Yorker, unlike in 2016, this year, their reach is far smaller. Now, part of that is because social media companies and law enforcement are on the lookout for this type of manipulation. They've taken steps that have significantly reduced the number of people exposed to these nefarious efforts. But getting back to foreign disinformation and its reach, Jaffa points to one of President Trump's retweets from July, one that contained coronavirus misinformation. That tweet got 14 million views versus disinformation from Russians, which only caught the attention of a few thousand followers on Facebook. So false information spread by American politicians or even news outlets far exceeds the reach any Russian website or bot has. And while it might be tempting to think the way to solve our disinformation problem is to just work harder at spreading accurate information, Jankowicz says that isn't really enough. She says we should look at Finland's model, where they teach media literacy in public schools and encourage students to understand how to spot false stories. And she says we need to restore civics education in American schools. After all, if you don't really get how the government works, you're more likely to believe in conspiratorial versions of how it functions. A couple of weeks ago, Hurricane Laura made landfall in Louisiana. 150-mile-an-hour winds battered the state. It was the most intense hurricane to hit Louisiana in more than a century and a half. It destroyed buildings and homes. At least 22 people in that state died. Five people in Texas also passed away. And on top of all of that, there is a looming environmental crisis as a result of hurricanes like this. Many of the Gulf Coast states have a lot of oil and gas refineries and other chemical plants, and many of them are right along the coast. And they're susceptible to damage when a powerful storm like Laura sweeps in. BuzzFeed News spoke with residents in a small, unincorporated community in Louisiana called Mossville. Formerly enslaved people founded the community, and it's mostly black today. But here's the thing. Nearby, chemical plants have been slowly buying up land. Mm -hmm. And at first, a lot of people thought it was a good thing, you know, bringing more jobs to the community. But the plants kept getting closer to people's homes. On Friday, health officials ordered some people in Mossville to shelter in place. They did this because a nearby chlorine plant was leaking toxic gas. And you'd think in that case, I mean, you can smell the gas. It's undeniably there. But it's not so easy to pinpoint the health implications for people who live near these industrial plants when a storm blows through, partly because the data isn't always there. According to BuzzFeed, Texas already released data about what pollutants were released into the environment in the wake of Hurricane Laura. But in Louisiana, there aren't a lot of regulations over these industries. And the rules have been loosened even more because of the coronavirus. That means that residents are left with a lot of uncertainty. On top of having to rebuild from the ground up in some cases, they'll also need to worry about whether they're living with toxic sludge on their land and whether the government is accurately letting them know if they're at risk. Recently, there have been a lot of concerns about how the post office is being run and whether service cuts and budget concerns are going to affect the way that ballots are sent and received this election. 
But National Geographic has a story that takes us away from all of that and into the history of the most notable people who've worked for the post office in the past. As the second largest employer in the country, it turns out the post office is where a handful of famous Americans got their start. There's Steve Carell, for example. He worked for the post office before he became Michael Scott on The Office. Mm -hmm. Walt Disney was a substitute mail carrier when he was young. Even Abraham Lincoln was a postmaster in Illinois. And the singer John Prine, who died this year of complications from COVID-19, he carried mail for three years. He even wrote a song about it, Hello In There. It was about greeting nursing home residents who were waiting for their daily mail delivery. And don't forget Richard Wright. He was one of the most influential writers of the 20th century. He wrote about the oppression of black Americans. And this speaks to another important thing to know about the post office. It's historically been a place where Americans who faced discrimination elsewhere could find a job and support themselves. You can find links to all these stories in today's show notes page. And if you're enjoying the show, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps other people find us. We'll talk with you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.